0: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about Ludwig Ludwig Wittgenstein. And I apologize for destroying his name. Uh, I don't speak German, so I don't pronounce German words very well. Um, But he is a uh, German-speaking philosopher. Uh, His work was written in German and translated into lots of other languages. Uh, He was actually a disciple for a little while of Bertrand Russell. Remember we talked about Bertrand Russell and his uh, philosophy of mathematics, and Russell has a lot that he wrote about the philosophy of mathematics, and one of the things that Russell wanted to do was found mathematics in logic, Um, to say that there is a definite solid foundation in logic for mathematics, therefore mathematics is you know, solidly founded. Uh, He never was able to end up doing this. Uh, He comes up with different problems, and we talked about some of those. Now, Wittgenstein wants to do what uh, Russell was trying to do with uh, mathematics to philosophy. He wants to ground philosophy in logic, and he wants to sort of draw a, a boundary of what he considered to be real philosophy that was something we could discuss and things that were just nonsense. So one of the things that he says in his preface, uh, what can be said at all can be said clearly, and whereof one cannot speak uh, thereof, one must be silent. So in other words, this is built on the solid belief in his mind that if something can't be stated clearly, uh If it can only be talked about vaguely or can only be talked about in words that and in ways that can't be nailed down, then it's not it's not meaningful it's something that is nonsense and This is one of the things that he tries to do now, as he gets later in his life and later in his career, he kind of realizes that mistakes were made in this, and that this really wasn't what it was supposed to be. Because in his mind, when he wrote this, this was it. This was the end all of philosophy. He said, all you could say in philosophy and now we're done with philosophy and we can move on to something else, Um, which is pretty ambitious for someone who was only in his early 20s when he wrote this. Um, It is brilliant. It is still highly influential. There have been lots of people who have in analytic philosophy and linguistic philosophy and logic um, who have built off of passages of this, um, but, you know, at the time in his mind, he thought this was it. There, there never has to be another book written on philosophy. Although he does kind of um, try to hedge his bets a little bit in the in the preface, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the next paragraph goes into, the book will therefore draw a limit to thinking, or rather not to thinking, but to experience. To the expression of thoughts. For in order to draw a limit to thinking, we should have to be able to think both sides of this limit. Uh, we should therefore have to be able to think what cannot be thought. Okay, to kind of boil this down into something a little simpler, um, in order to know what the true limits of thought are, you would have to not only be able to see all that was inside that limit but be able to see which things were outside that limit. And if you were able to see outside that limit, then what was inside was obviously not a limit to begin with. Uh, And so this is something that is impossible. It's it's logically impossible. You can't see the whole thing um, because it's something you're inside of. You can't see the outside when you're completely inside. You would have no access to anything that was outside of the... The bounds of thought, and in order to know what those bounds truly were, uh, you would have to be able to see that. So what he tries to do is nail it down to language and say, okay, I'm not, we can't know what is the, the limit to our thoughts, but we can outline what is the limit to what we can express. And Wittgenstein, you know, and a lot of philosophers, especially in the 20th, and 21st century, we're really trying to get rid of some of the problems of philosophy by feeling like, by by treating it as if part of our problem is we've spent too much time talking about things that we have no way of talking about and really have no business talking about because it's something outside of our ability to do. Um, So he says, the limit can therefore only be drawn in language, and what lies on the other side of the limit Will be simply nonsense, so in other words, it's not even worth talking about from his perspective uh he does in his preface, give mention of Frigga and Bertrand Russell, you know they owe that he owes them a debt for kind of setting them on the path frigga we haven't Frege we haven't touched yet um we will go back to him. he's like Russell, he is very much in um the pre analytic tradition, I guess you would call him, but trying to found the, the you know, mathematics and pure logic uh, to give it a solid foundation. Now, if a lot of this sounds familiar from other episodes I've done, uh, you know, remember philosophy always seems to be wanting to find that solid foundation. And a lot of the differences in the way people do this have to do with what foundation they're trying to get, whether it's founding it on a solid foundation of what can't be doubted, or a solid foundation of faith, or a solid foundation of logic, or, you know, an under solid foundation of an understanding of the world of forms, you know, these are all attempts to build this as a precise science that, um, or a precise discipline, I should say, that will lead to certainty. Now, the problem I've brought up in other episodes and even in other podcasts that I do outside of this series is the fact that when you're trying to ground something on a solid, unmoving foundation in a universe that has no solid, unmoving parts, it means you're basically setting uh, your foundation in an imaginary universe that we don't live in. And so there's going to be a very limited um, amount that this universe you've you know, got your solid foundation in, is going to actually correspond to the one we live in. Um, and he, at the end of his preface, he says, I am therefore of the opinion that the problems have in es- essentials been finally solved. And if I am not mistaken in this, then the value of this work secondly consists in the fact that it shows how little has been done when these problems have been solved. So this is, again, that statement that I said that was really optimistic and overly optimistic the fact that well I wrote this book and now we don't have to do this anymore and in fact after he wrote this book he did retire from philosophy he felt well I solved that problem onto something else and he did move into other areas teaching engineering other things like that but he eventually becomes dissatisfied with what he comes up with in this work and comes back to it later when you look at the actual work itself, it is set up, if you're familiar with math proofs, you can see where um, you know, why this found why this book is set up the way it is. It's set up the same way you would do proofs in geometry. It's set up in propositions, and every proposition is supposed to be solid and unquestionable. And then you build the next proposition off of that and the next one off of that. So he actually does have it written almost as if it is a geometric proof. Uh the first proof that he puts forward. Uh, the world is everything that is the case. So, you know, and, and with with uh Wittgenstein, you definitely have to slow down and think about this. This is not a flip-through read, as most philosophy is not. Um, You have to sort of read it, step back, digest it, and then go to the next bite and keep going that way. Because if you just are looking at words, which often happens when people are reading, you eventually get to a point where you're like, wait, how did he even get here? How how did I get here? I, you know, because you at some point tuned out. Um, This is this is one of the things that makes philosophy um, and the sciences very difficult for most people. You can't skip steps. You can't just, oh, I sort of got it and go on to the next thing. You really have to digest each part as you get it. And so I'm not going to go through this whole book because this podcast would be about 30, 40 hours long and nobody wants to listen to a podcast that is 30, 40 hours long. I'm going to give you some of the basics of the beginning of this and then I'm going to talk about some of his later philosophy. Um, Okay, after that he goes, the world is the totality of facts, not of things. Uh, Third proposition, the world is determined by the facts and by these being all the facts. Um, And facts here are, what he's talking about are the, not only uh, physical facts, but the facts of um, interaction uh, the you know, how the whole system works together. This is what he's talking about as the facts, and he does build into this a little more clearly. Um, for the totality of facts determines both what is the case and also all that is not the case. So when you have all of the facts about the universe, you not only have all of what there is, but you also know what does not exist, what there is not. Because once you have all of the facts, anything outside of that is obviously non-existent. Uh, the facts in logical space are the world. So he talks about these are, he starts dividing what these facts are. He has, you know, facts about logic, facts about mathematics. But these facts he's talking about are the facts in um, in space. So what he means by this is objects. Anything that is extended into three-dimensional space, Um, and that's, you know, the the facts, uh, totality of facts, I'm sorry, the facts in logical space are the world. So logical space is the space of, let's say, the entire universe, and the things that have um, uh, extension into that space, uh, all of those things are the logical facts. Now, if you've, you know, studied anything about astronomy and how large space actually is, Uh, this means that it would be impossible to actually know what all of the facts are. Even if you start to look at just the facts in, let's say, a small corner of space like the room you're in. If I want to talk about every object in the room that I'm in um, as being kind of, let's pretend this is the universe, uh, it's incredibly complex just to talk about what's in a room, even if you're in a fairly simple room, because you would have to talk about everything the carpet the wallpaper the you know the tiles the ceiling the colors the all of the objects in the room because all of these things are part of the facts of this room so to get an overall understanding of what is in this room and what is not in this room you have to take uh you know you have to take account of what there is now there are some things that might be larger things that you can say okay this is definitely not part of the equation. Like if I look around, I definitely do not see any horses, cows, chickens, donkeys, elephants, uh, you know, fish, any of these things in this room. So if this were the entire universe in this room, those things would not exist. That would mean those would have to be not facts in, you know, logical space, but might be facts in uh, mental space might be facts of the imagination, um but he does go on to talk about the fact that all of the facts in uh that area in imagination have to have some correspondence to facts in the real world, and what he's kind of talking about this is the ability to fictionalize i can you know I can think of a purple lion with the neck of a giraffe uh, and the, you know, head of a seagull. Why? Because I've simply reconstructed things that actually exist in the logical space. I've taken the body of a lion, I've taken which exists and I can know what that is because I've seen pictures or I've seen lions. I've taken the color purple, which I can know what that is because I've seen Objects that are that color. I can take the neck of the giraffe and so forth because these are things that I've constructed. Uh, And and what he's talking about here is you couldn't construct a thing in your imagination that had no correspondence to things in the real world. You can stretch them, you can do all kinds of things with them, uh, but you can't create them. For example, uh, you can't think of a three-dimensional object that doesn't have any dimensions. Um, This is a a contradiction. You know, if I'm thinking of a square that has no shape and is not extended into the world, then what am I thinking about? I'm not thinking about anything I can logically picture. Uh, And this this is part of what he's talking about. If you can't connect your thoughts, your ideas, your arguments to things in the real world then basically what you're talking about is, is nonsense. You know, if I'm talking about a, you know, a three-dimensional square that doesn't exist in any of the dimensions, uh, what I'm talking about is something that is difficult to even picture how that would work out, because to picture a three-dimensional object means I'm required to think of di- dimensions. And so he doesn't, you know, this isn't something that's dismissing fiction. But it is saying for fiction to be understandable, it has to connect to things in our real world. Um, This is why no matter how fantastical a work of fiction is, there has to be a description that the reader or that the audience can visualize. Because if you can't visualize it, it's complete nonsense. Okay. What is the case? The fact is the existence of atomic facts. An atomic fact is a combination of objects, entities, and things. It is essential to a thing that it can be a constituent part of an atomic fact. Um, Okay, this again is going into uh, sort of describing the universe or describing this room. This room is made up of uh, objects, entities, things in a combination that make this room. Uh, and, and again, this is something that he's not really foreseeing the fact of, uh, well, he does foresee it a little bit and he doesn't. He foresees the fact that if this room is all I know, then I can't think of things that are, are not in this room and have never been in this room. So we're limited to that. Um, but it, it does, you know, really draw limits to what, I can talk about if I'm only able to talk about this room and this is kind of his point that it there you're limited in what you can talk about and and make sense for example uh, if you know I'm trying to describe to you what life is like on a planet that doesn't have any mass doesn't have any matter um, is is completely absent of all of that uh, how would I describe that I, I couldn't describe that it doesn't exist in a way that can be not only conceptualized by someone but that also has to be transmitted because part of what he's going after in this and his in his later works is that for things to be um worthy of being discussed they have to be able to be discussed when you can't discuss them then what are you going to do and you know this is why this book ends with you know when you you know when you can't Uh, Let me go flip to the end so I can get you the exact quote. Uh, Whereof one cannot speak, therefore uh, one must be silent. So in other words, if if you're trying to explain something that you have no words for, you have no way of describing to someone else, the only thing you can do with that is be silent, because that is outside of what would make sense. That's outside of logic and outside of uh, being able to be communicated. Um, Okay. Just as we cannot think of spatial objects at all apart from space or temporal objects apart from time, so we cannot think of any object apart from the possibility to its connection with other objects. So if I, you know, think about something that's extended into space, I I have to have a concept of something extended into space. If I'm thinking of something that is extended in time, I have to be able to conceptualize and uh, describe that time. If that time can't be described as time, um, then it isn't something we can talk about. Uh, Time involves either points in time or duration. And if you're talking about something that is temporal, bound in time, and it has neither points in time nor duration, there's no way to convey that. Uh, if I know an object, then I also know all the possibilities of its occurrence in atomic facts. Every such possibility must lie in the nature of the object. A new possibility cannot sub- subsequently be found. So in other words, once you've exhausted all of the possibilities of an object, of, of what an object can be, what it can contain, what it, you know, what its essence, uh, what it is, there can't be anything new that pops up. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to go too far into this book because uh, I've already gone quite a bit into it and uh, I just want to give you a taste of it. And we are going to do this book in much more depth. We're going to do a lot of episodes on him in future seasons, but we're we're still keeping it to introductory. But I do want to touch on another one of his ideas from later in his career. And this is the idea of language games. And this is one of the things that the reasons that he starts to see flaws in this is because he realizes we're all playing language games, uh, and things only make sense within the rules of that language game. Uh, If one person is playing one language game and another person is playing a different language game, the things they say to each other will not make sense. Um, For example, if I am um, talking about, uh, the cost of, uh, an item. I, I'm talking about things in the language of money. I'm talking about the things in the language of commodity. Um, and then somebody, you know, if I say, how much does, you know, a house cost? And the person says, uh, happy cornflakes. That that doesn't make sense in my language game. There's no way I can translate his response, his or her response, happy cornflakes into how much does my house, how much does this house cost? How much does this item cost? And this is what he talks about. And this is part of where he's getting into why people have misunderstandings. Um, you know, because sometimes one person is playing one language game, and the person they're speaking with is playing a different language game. And in that case, since they're playing different language games, what they're trying to communicate back and forth is nonsense back and forth. It doesn't make any sense. Um, You know, if I'm uh, trying to talk about, you know, biology, and I'm talking about cells and um, you know, chromosomes and DNA and RNA and, you know, all of these different biological things. And somebody answers, well, you know, what are, what is the building block of all life? Of You know, what are the building blocks of life? And someone says Tuesday. That, that doesn't make any sense. Um, now for the person who said Tuesday, that doesn't mean they're a complete idiot. Um, they could be playing a language game where, you know, the building blocks of their life are, you know, their parents met on a Tuesday. uh, And, you know, that's when, uh, you know, they were uh, procreated, was on a Tuesday. So for them, you know, the building blocks of life saying Tuesday uh, makes sense in their mind, or Tuesday might be their birthday. That was the day they came into the world. The building blocks of everything about their life, happened when they came into the world. It was a Tuesday. But these responses back and forth don't make sense because one person is playing one language game. Another person is playing a different language game. And one of the things that he talks about in this is that there is no privileged language. Um, People often would try to privilege science and say, no, science is the right way of talking about the world. And you say, okay, um, what is the significance of love? That's not a question that science can answer. Um, Science wouldn't be able to give any meaningful. Um, They might be able to talk about the chemical processes that go on in the brain and in the body during the feelings of love, but that doesn't, give you the significance. Those two people are having different conversations. And neither of those conversations, one is better than the other. You know, the science isn't better. The 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 conversation about significance isn't better. They're simply different language games. Both of them have sets of rules within them if you want to play that language game. And both of them are looking for something different. Um, and so he really tries to bring attention to the fact of what this, it's sort of almost a shot at his earlier work, and say the idea that I can put everything into a book of philosophy and solve all of the problems of philosophy, and thereby, you know, all of the world's problems become understandable, he realized fell very short, because in his book, you know, this doesn't tell you anything about what's a good life, what's a happy life. You know, this isn't even something that's easy for people to discuss when they are talking to each other. Because if I say, you know, I want a happy life, and the person next to me is in a similar language game, and they're like, yeah, I want a lot of money too. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want money at all. Money has nothing to do with my happy life. I want to have, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of ice cream, or I want to have a lot of friends, or I want someone who loves me. See, even though we're playing a similar language game, we're not playing the same language game. And again, this is why there are misunderstandings behind, between people who think they're on the same page. Um, I've talked about something similar to this in when I've talked about the imprecision of language, and one of the you know, and how this leads to misunderstanding. Uh, for example, if I say. You know, he was a big man. Uh, what does big mean? In my language game that I'm playing, big might mean tall and muscular. The person who hears that statement, in their mind, big might mean, oh, he's important and influential. Very different meanings of big, and yet we're both trying to talk about the same game. So, you know, and and communicate to each other. So this is one of the things that, you know, towards the end of his life, towards the end of his philosophy career, he just starts to get into these questions and opens up a lot of doors about epistemology and language and communication and miscommunication. Okay, I'm going to break off this episode here. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.